Okay, so my name is Nick Lannon. I am the pastor of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky. It's a great honor to be here with you uh, in Lancaster this morning, and I was, I was happy to hear uh, Kyle talking about identity and his devotion before this talk because my identity changed profoundly. Uh, I think it was about three weeks ago. I was playing basketball with my nine-year-old son and several of his friends from school at the elementary school after school ended one day, and I'll have you know that I was destroying them. Um, <laughs> They all had to play on the same team, and I was by myself, and I was totally taking them to task. And then um, one of my son's classmates said to me, can you dunk? And I want you to understand that I have been able to dunk since my junior year of high school, and um, so this is, this is the sort of long way that I've thought of myself as someone who can dunk. There was even a time in college when I was 6'5", 185 pounds, and I could do cool dunks, like alley-oops and reverses and things actually in a game. Um, but then, you know, life happens to you, and you go from 6'5", 185, to 6'6", 245. So that's one inch, and if my addition is right, 60 pounds. Um, but I, I was still able for years to do it. And then, you know, you get white hair in your beard and you get trick knees a little bit and all of a sudden you find yourself like I did, not trying to dunk so that you can still tell yourself that you can dunk and say, well, the last time I tried, I was successful. So I could still think of myself as someone who could dunk. And then three years ago, three weeks ago, this little nine-year-old said to me, can you dunk? And I knew that I was no longer someone who could dunk. For all these years, I had been someone who was able to do something, and now I had to come face to face with the truth that I was now somebody who could not do something. I had gone from someone who was at least able to tell himself that he was able to somebody who was disabled at least in this way. So that's who I am. That's my introduction of myself, somebody who is unable to dunk. I'm Nick Landon, and I can't dunk. Um, of course, I'm more than just somebody who can't dunk. I'm also a preacher, and that means that I feel compelled to begin any kind of talk with a reading um, from Scripture. So I'm going to read to you a piece of Scripture that you not only already know because of how familiar you are with it naturally, but because we've heard it uh, read and referred to a couple times this week already, this section of Romans chapter 7. I'm going to start at verse 15 and then on for a little bit. So this is the word of the Lord. St. Paul writes, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, this I keep on doing. 
Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We know these words very well, and we tell ourselves that they're true, we believe them, but it seems to me that so often in our practical everyday lives, and especially in our ministries, we don't actually believe them. They're too deep, they're too profound. We see ourselves and others, despite what we actually think, as able to do the things we want to do. We see the people in our churches as able to do the things they ought to do and able to avoid the things they hate. We see ourselves as able to avoid the things that we hate. This belief, though, this belief that Paul is actually dealing with something that we're not really dealing with in our everyday lives when he talks about this body of death. This belief, I feel, is crippling us. It is ruining our ministries. This internal thing where we see ourselves as able and the external thing where we see the people in our churches as able. So this morning, in the context of this ability versus disability, I want to talk about compassion, which I'll define as the ability to see ourselves and others in Romans 7 terms and how important compassion is. I've called this talk, We Are Them, Compassion as the Lifeblood of Pastoral Ministry. So ready? We are them. At the end of the great film, The Blues Brothers, as they're beginning the concert at the Palace Hotel Ballroom, Elwood Blues comes out to welcome the crowd to the show, including the cops who are there to arrest him and his brother after the concert. And he says this, Remember, people, that no matter what you do to live, thrive, and survive, there are some things that make us all the same. You, me, them, everybody. And then, of course, they swing into everybody needs somebody to love. But that's the thesis of this morning's talk, that there are some things that make us all the same. You and me and even them. In fact, we are them. And my assertion here is that one of the things, maybe even the most important thing that makes us all the same, pastors and congregations alike, is a desperate need for compassion. If we can have compassion, we can survive. When compassion dies, so do we. So I want to say something about having compassion for others. Then I want to say something about having compassion for ourselves. And finally, I want to say something that is good news to what St. Paul calls our inner beings, which have been battlefields between the law of God and the law of your mind. I want to hopefully tell you something that will deliver you from that body of death. So, 
It was the summer of 2012, back when I could still dunk, and I was shooting around before a pickup basketball game in suburban New Jersey, and I was having a conversation with the other guys there at the gym about the recent suicide of the football player, Junior Seau. Perhaps you remember this, and we were all sort of astonished at what had happened. Uh, we couldn't believe that a man who was so famous, so rich, who had so much, could be so depressed as to take his own life. What could possibly be so bad about his life that it wasn't worth living? I felt the same way as all of these other guys. How could something like this happen? How could somebody who seemingly had everything also feel like there was nothing to live for? And the tone of our conversation quickly became derisive. We were sort of making fun of him. We uh, thought he must be weak, fragile, pathetic even. And then, almost hesitantly, one of the people who was there that evening suggested that perhaps it was possible that his brain had been irreparably damaged by concussions, by CTE, by the numerous minor head traumas that he suffered over the course of his playing career, and it was incredible. The mood of the gym changed like that. It was like a switch was thrown. All of a sudden, no one had a cutting remark. Nobody was talking about how satisfied they were with how much less they had than what Junior Seau had. We recalled immediately the story of another NFL player who, when also committing suicide, had shot himself in the chest so that his brain could be examined. He knew that something was going on that he couldn't control. The mood in the gym became somber and the tone compassionate. And what had happened? We immediately went from derision to compassion when we collectively transitioned from seeing Junior say I was basically able to basically disabled. That is, we used to see him as in control to out of control. Um, able to affect the outcomes of his life to unable. And of course, it's only natural to feel, to feel derision for somebody who could be in control but is not, and compassion for someone who's obviously out of control and subject to it. Compassion was impossible for us as long as we saw Seau as able or in control, but compassion bloomed in us when we saw him as disabled or out of control. And the people in your congregations are Junior Seau. They are disabled. They are out of control. They do not understand their own actions. They are Romans 7 people. They do the things they hate. They don't do the things they want to do. Who will deliver them? from their bodies of death. A college classmate of mine, and one of my closest friends actually to this day, which as you'll hear in a second is a miracle, uh, was at the time having sex with her boyfriend. And she knew that having sex outside of marriage was not God's intention for her life, and so she wanted to stop, and she came to me in an effort to have me hold her accountable. 
that she, she didn't, desperately didn't want to talk to me about the sex she was having. So she thought that the fear of that would prevent her from doing it. And, um, and uh, so she did that. And I'll never forget what happened. At first, I was able to be the compassionate shoulder to cry on that she needed. When she sinned, she came to me and I was able to be compassionate to her. I prayed for her, hoped for her, tried to help her through this struggle for a little while. But as the confessions became more frequent instead of less, my compassion began to dry up. I began to resent her. After all, why couldn't she just stop? Just don't do it. Why couldn't she and her boyfriend just keep their clothes on? I mean, seriously, if you don't want to have sex with somebody, just don't didn't seem that hard to me. Of course, one of the reasons it didn't seem that hard to me is that I was literally never in a situation in which anyone ever wanted to have sex with me. I couldn't, I couldn't understand how somebody could continually do something that they told me they didn't want to do. And it was a miracle in retrospect that I didn't completely ruin that relationship with that friend. I was unable to have compassion on her because I saw her as able to do something that she wasn't doing. My assumption that she had the power within herself to change herself completely killed my ability to have compassion for her. The Anglican reformer Thomas Cranmer acknowledges this truth in a prayer that he wrote that Anglican churches say on the fourth Sunday of Lent each year. Here's what Cranmer writes in this prayer. He writes, Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Notice the sentence. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise. Among the swift and varied changes of the world, the brilliance of Cranmer's insight here is the recognition that only God can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. And so, Cranmer has us pray to God to ask for grace, not to do what he commands, but to love it. Cranmer knows that the problem is ultimately not in our behavior, but in our hearts. We ask him to renovate what's inside of us, not what is outside of us. He knows what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. He knows that capability is the problem. We can't do the things we want to do. We keep doing the things that we hate. So what do we ask God for? Not to change what we do, but to change what we want, what, what our capabilities are. We ask God to go deeper to the heart. He knows that only God can deliver us from this body of death. We cannot do it ourselves, and neither can the people in our congregations. So here's the thing. Christians are disabled. Well, they're not especially disabled, just 
as disabled as everyone else. Junior Seau was disabled. My college classmate was disabled. I am disabled. All people are in this way disabled. And it's easy for us to think of Christians as able in a way that they and we are actually not. And the result of this mistaken thinking is derision, the death of compassion. If we see people as fundamentally able to make good choices, possessing the ability to improve and able to control themselves, our ability to be compassionate to them will die. This will damage and threaten to kill any relationship, including and perhaps especially a pastoral one. Now, as a pastor, I have come to realize not only that Paul's words in Romans 7, I do not do what I want, but I keep doing the very thing I hate, not only are those words true, but they're part of a universal human condition, fundamental to pastoral care for people. We might just call this condition something like impossible life syndrome. All your people are living impossible lives. We're all sufferers. We all have this disease. And compassion cannot exist where we see people as able because people are inveterate failures. We pastors will either come to hate our people because they don't take the good advice we're giving them, or we come to hate ourselves because we're not giving them advice good enough. In either case, hatred for them or us is the end result. If, if we want to avoid this, if we want to avoid hating those closest to us and deriding those further away, we must begin to see people as the disabled creatures that they are. Like Paul, like Junior Seau, like my college friend, like me. They do the very thing they hate. And we can only be there compassionately, when they cry out for a savior with the good news of Romans 8.1 that there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And now, the, the diabolical truth, and I, I think I mean that literally, that this truth is from the devil. The diabolical truth is that the reason we assume other people are able is because we are desperate to claim that we ourselves are able. And it is only when we can admit that we too are disabled and that everyone else is just like us, that we are them, that compassion for ourselves can begin to flourish. I'm sure you're all familiar with the Human League, the British synth pop group who in 1986 threw creativity onto the scrap heap and though their name was the Human League, came out with an album called Human with a song called Human on it. Uh, the song is incredible though. It includes the lines, I'm only human of flesh and blood. I'm made human, born to make mistakes. Now they really put their finger on what it means to be human, haven't they? To be human is to make mistakes. To be human is to be in need, to feel like you are less than you could be. When was, when was the last time you did something wonderful and then said, well, I am human? 
It's never happened. Not once in the history of the world we invoke our humanness to apologize for the things we've done wrong. I'm only human, we say. And if being human is to be fundamentally disabled, it must mean that we, the pastors, you and I, are fundamentally disabled too. Remember Elwood Blues. You, me, them, everybody. Uh, For the last couple of days, I've seen a certain meme going around on my Facebook feed. It's a picture of George Strait. And the quote is, if you don't leave the past in the past, it will destroy your future. Look at what's in front of you, not what yesterday took away. The best is yet to come. That sounds great. And that makes a lot of sense to our human minds. But this, I would like to suggest to you this morning, is actually a disabling idea. And as we transition now from talking about having compassion for others to having compassion for ourselves, I want to talk about a fundamental misunderstanding of how we control the past and the present and the future, a misunderstanding that I hope will go pretty well with what Mark was saying yesterday about sin, death, and the devil. Live in the present, right? You hear that all the time. Think about the future. After all, the future is the only thing you can do anything about. So work toward a better one. The past is just that, in the past. Forget it. You can't change it, so don't think about it. But that's not true. In fact, it's exactly reversed. The truth about life is that it's the future you can't do much of anything about. And in fact, the only thing you can control is your past. I know that sounds weird, sort of runs counter to everything that we think is true, but it has everything to do with compassion and survival in pastoral ministry. Because, listen, think about the control you've tried to exercise over your future. Are you where you thought you'd be 10 years ago? I'm certainly not. Perhaps you are, and you've been at your school for 25, so we... Some of us are doing okay, but many of us are nowhere near where we were trying to get to in the past. I look at my life, and though I thank God for where I am now, I more often than not find myself wondering, how did this happen? You can't control your future nearly as much as you think you can, but listen to something just as counterintuitive. You can control your past. In fact, I'll go so far as to say, you can change your past. And this is how you do it. You change your past by forgiving yourself for it. You change your past by having compassion on yourself. And that, despite conventional wisdom, changes everything. The false idea that we can control our future leads to things like workaholism and burnout. If that's all you think you can control, what's going to happen to you in the future, that's where you'll put all your energy desperately trying to make things come out the right way. 
And then, when the future does what the future does, and it doesn't turn out how you thought it would, who do you blame? Either God or yourself. And just like it does when you see other people as fundamentally able, when you focus on your future as though you're able to mold it, you'll find that compassion, this time for yourself, will die. The truth is that it's the past that you can do something about. And what you can do is forgive. We can forgive ourselves and others. It's the only way that the future is livable. I remember when my wife was pregnant with our first child, I got myself pretty worked up in the months leading up to the birth. I'd never been a father before, and I think existential crisis is probably too strong a phrase, um, but something was happening. I was, I was getting a little bit freaked out having never been a father, and uh, later, years later, in fact, I realized what was actually happening within me leading up to the birth of this child. I was focused on all the future decisions I was going to have to make, the sort of infinite decision tree that branches out from the birth of a child uh, that would determine everything about her future, right? Do we do disposable diapers or cloth diapers? Bottle feed or breastfeed? Jarred food or ground up food from our own plates? Harvard or Yale? There are so many decisions. And it wasn't until I could look back on myself in that time and realize that my focus on the future was destroying my ability to live in the present. What I had to do was to forgive myself for all the mistakes I was definitely going to make. Now, I know that sounds like forgiving my future self, but what it really was was forgiving myself for being me. Forgiving the past is the only way to have a future at all. Uh, in the 2012 Robert Zemeckis film, Flight, Denzel Washington plays an alcoholic airline pilot who, despite being drunk, and I, I think on drugs as well, it's been a little while since I've seen it, uh, safely lands a malfunctioning airplane, even going so far as to execute the, the Top Gun flying upside down uh, thing, and he saves the lives of almost everyone on board. And in the inquiry after the crash, some empty bottles of alcohol are found, and no alcohol was served on the flight. And he's able, though, to lay the blame off on one of the stewardesses who had some blood in, had some alcohol in her blood. He's about to get out of it, right? He's about to be exonerated, even though he's totally guilty. He's about to get off scot-free. But he's tortured. His Life is falling apart, even as it looks like things are going to work out for him. He's devolving. But then at the very end, he decides that he has to tell the truth about what happened, even though it means he will go to prison. And the movie ends there with Denzel in jail. In jail, right? The future now totally out of his control. He's literally in prison. But within himself, he has dealt with his past. Now, in the church, we talk about confession, which leads inevitably and inexorably to absolution. He has dealt with his past, and he is a new man, a free man, 
a man with a future. I read a detective novel once, a John Sanford novel, in which the killer is revealed to be the grown-up, miraculously saved infant of a woman murdered while she was pregnant. Are you following that? That's a little complicated. Uh, The pregnant woman was murdered, and several people conspired to cover it up. And years later, the killings start, and the cops eventually realize that it's the kid all grown up and seeking revenge. Right? The imagery here is amazing. It's literally the unrepented of past coming back to murder you. We must forgive ourselves for our pasts. We must have compassion on ourselves if we want our ministries to have anything like a future. And I think all of this, all of these sort of theoretical things I've said are true. In theory, compassion is the lifeblood of pastoral ministry. It's incredibly important that we be able to have compassion, both for ourselves and for those to whom we minister. But for theory to move into practicality, we must be reminded of the source of our compassion. How is it that we can have compassion? We must remember that we can only have compassion on them because God has had compassion on us. I know you know this, that you are a great sinner, saved by a greater Savior, that Jesus took all your shortcomings with him to the cross and gave his triumph to you. But is there a compassionate word for preachers, specifically. A comfortable word for the proclaimer of comfortable words. I find mine in Isaiah 55. So listen and hear the good news for you pastors and preachers. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's word will accomplish what he desires, and it will achieve the purpose for which he sent it. So rest assured, my friends, and I mean that literally, rest. Be assured that God has plans for his word proclaimed, and those are plans he means to accomplish. This is his promise to us, his preacher's And it is uh, just like the promise he made to Peter and the disciples uh, when he was preparing them for his death and resurrection. He said, after I am risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And then, of course, these men, tasked with proclaiming Jesus' message to Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth— they immediately did everything they could possibly do to disqualify themselves for that service. They denied him. They ran and hid, just like us. We constantly 
think of ourselves and others as more able than we and they actually are. Of course, there is no we and they. We are them. We let our people down, and we let ourselves down. I imagine many of us feel like Peter felt when he heard that Jesus was risen. And I don't mean the joyful, thank God, Jesus is risen, feeling. I mean the first one that came just before that one, the, oh no, (laughs) he's back and he knows what I did. Jesus is going to be so angry at me. I denied him. I abandoned him. But on the morning of that third day, when the women came back from the tomb, they came back bearing a message, a message left by Jesus for his so often faithless disciples, a message, fellow preachers, that is left for us too. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell that room full of preachers in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, that Jesus is risen, and he is going ahead of you to Galilee, just as he promised. Jesus is keeping his promise. God's word will accomplish the purposes for which he sent it. This is true. God's word proclaimed through you is even now accomplishing the purposes for which he sent it. Thanks be to God. Amen.